Welcome to the June 2015 episode of Anthropod. I'm Jessica Lockram. And I'm Grant Otsky. Now in this episode, we'll be speaking with Kevin Lewis O'Neill, the winner of the Society for Cultural Anthropology's 2014 Cultural Horizons Prize. And Jessica, you were on the selection committee for last year's prize, along with Ivan Sandoval Cervantes of the University of Oregon and Britt Dahlberg of the University of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So each year, the Society for Cultural Anthropology chooses a jury of graduate students to select the best article from the previous year's volume of cultural anthropology. And we weren't given a lot of guidance in how to choose the best article. So among ourselves, we decided to, of course, independently read the entire volume from the year 2013 and each pick our top three to four articles. Um, the idea wasn't necessarily that if an article got the most votes, it would be the automatic winner, but that we would use this short list to generate a discussion among the three of us. And it turned out that two of the articles made it on everyone's shortlist, which I thought was quite surprising. And then when we spoke via Skype to determine the winner, um, although of course it was a very difficult choice, uh, Kevin O'Neill's article became a clear winner after we realized we had been speaking for the greater part of the meeting, not just about the merits of the article, but about the ideas themselves and the finer points of his argument. As we stated when we presented the prize to Kevin O'Neill at the AAA meetings, uh, we chose this article for the Horizons Prize because of the richness of its ethnography, the breadth of its theoretical insights, and the craft of its writing. The essay demonstrates that the best of anthropological writing can be deeply empirical, broadly theoretical, and a pleasure to read. That sounds great. Now, I had the opportunity to sit down with Professor O'Neill in Toronto this past February, and we spoke about his work. He's the author of the books City of God and Secure the Soul, both from the University of California Press and uh, Professor O'Neill's associate professor in the Department for the Study of Religion and the Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies at the University of Toronto. Forever. For about 70 cents, you can buy a can of soda, regular or diet. In Guatemala, for 70 cents a day, you can help a child like Vilma get the clothes she needs to attend school. Today, so many children around the world still need your help. And through Christian Children's Fund, you can reach out to one of them by sharing, well, just a little of your pocket change. It takes so little for you to become a special friend to a child in a developing country, but boy, the good it can do is worth more than you can imagine. Those of us of a certain generation and background will have heard pleas like this one for our pocket change quite often. And when Sally Struthers went on TV in the 1980s to ask for our help, things were just starting out. Today, major aid agencies collectively handle $4 billion each year. Reading Kevin O'Neill's prize-winning essay, I learned that there's much more to these sponsorship programs than money, moving from one set of hands to another, or little pieces of empathy that you can purchase for pennies a day. In his essay, we meet youths living in La Paloma, a neighborhood of Guatemala City dominated by gangs and avoided by the police and many aid agencies. We also meet people in North Carolina who sponsor some of these children through Christian child sponsorship organizations. And what he shows us is a tightening relationship among salvation, security, and subjectivity in Central America. And thank you for being here, Professor O'Neill. Thanks, Grant. Now, 
Christian Child Sponsorship, North Carolina, and Guatemala. Where did your interest in these things start? Well, I think like many people, at least when they're talking about their second project, it started with their first project, which is my dissertation research in Guatemala. So at this point, I've been doing fieldwork in Guatemala, particularly Guatemala City, for about 15 years, on and off. Um, so with trips as short as two weeks, as long as two years, and these days I'm there roughly three months a year. And The, fir- the first project, uh, which ended up with the book City of God, looked at democratization and citizenship and looked at a, a large mega church in Guatemala City, thinking about in the post-war context, how do Guatemalans, particularly Pentecostal Guatemalans, perform their citizenship? And I found that they use Pentecostalism quite a bit to imagine themselves as part of a of a new democracy or a democratizing context. During all of that research, and actually during kind of the long stay of that research, security issues became a major, a major concern. So the big stretch of the research was in 2006 and 2007. And in 2006, it was one of the toughest years in Guatemala City in terms of homicides. It was also a moment where the idea of gangs and gang violence became, I wouldn't say real, but certainly palpable in, in the capital. And we, we can talk about the kind of history of, of transnational gangs in Central America, that they often start in Los Angeles but end up in Central America. But what I saw, at least in the second half of that long stay, was a emerging project about Christianity and security as related to gangs. Because as kind of like my, my biggest wager with my research is that if I'm interested more in governance than Christianity, which I think is true, then it's Christianity that's really the window into governance in Central America. Christians are the ones who are who are doing the work of civil society, of policing the streets and providing for the poor and and providing all the social services that, that a retreating state is not. And so where this come from? It came from uh, this first project, and it's something I began to pursue immediately. Was there a particular sort of moment when you felt like things were, were coming together and pointing you in this direction towards looking at security? The initial framing was, I mean, back in 2006, there was actually a moment in which the two largest gangs in Central America, so Mara Salvatrucha and Barrio 18, these two major gangs that emerged out of L.A. but came back to Central America, there was actually only two recognizable ways out of the gangs. So these were growing gangs, and one was by death. One could disaffiliate if one died, and that's kind of like intuitive and incredibly tragic. The other way was through Christian conversion. And so my initial movement into the project was to look at conversion as a way out of gang affiliation. So there's actually this incredible book written by this qualitative sociologist, Robert Brenneman, called Homies and Hermanos, God and Gangs in Central America. Now, he started the project earlier than I did, probably 2004, 2005, and ended up publishing the book around 2011. Uh, it's, I think, a, a really interesting look into a moment in which Christianity and conversion actually served as a way out. What I ended up doing in terms of my fieldwork was coming to the project, kind of the tail end of a very small window in which conversion was a way out. But what that did was, in fact, open a window, or at least a door, for Christian aid agencies and Christian projects to see Christianity as an answer to some of Central America's biggest problems, like gang violence. And so while, you know, Brenneman uh, looks at conversion, what I got to see was a developing security apparatus that took the soul as its principal means of, um, of governance. Like, that, that, that was the site to fix Central American violence. So the other sort of site that you consider in the article is in North Carolina. So it sounds like you started in Guatemala and then you followed something back to North Carolina. 
all my research begins in Guatemala City, and and the way that I came across child sponsorship, and frankly, I was I was really hesitant to do work on child sponsorship, because, I you know, uh, Erica Bornstein has this incredible article in American Ethnologist on on child sponsorship, and I think it was published in 2001. And I think she kills it. She just crushes the analysis, and it was extraordinary. And it's, this is fieldwork in Zimbabwe with uh, World Vision, World Vision Zimbabwe. And what I take from her piece, at least you know, what I try to build on, is although she's working within a humanitarian frame and, and looking at how this distribution of money from uh, the, you know, the so-called West to Zimbabwe um, helps children in a humanitarian frame, what her work really brings out for me is the inevitable disparity that this kind of giving produces. Uh, and that, I think, is like the real ethnographic contribution for me. In terms of what I build on is, is the realization that if she's doing her fieldwork in 1996, 1997, and much of my work was done in 2011, but also onwards with child sponsorship, a lot has changed with the industry. It's grown tremendously. Its ability to connect because of social media has changed dramatically, um, as well as kind of uh, quick payment uh, methods, etc. What I had to do was re-understand the industry, uh, but still, with in terms of Erica's work, keep that kind of interest in social disparity central, which I think is is kind of the enduring relevance of of, of her work. I'm I'm shuttling between a number of different sites during my fieldwork for for this burgeoning interest in Christianity and security. Basically, I'm, what I'm trying to do is narrate this moment of, of discovery, but while I'm in this barranco, in this place I call La Paloma, I'm walking with a gang minister through the streets of this very narrow settlement, which in a barranco is a, is a canyon, and I had no idea there was a barranco right behind his house. These things just spring up, uh, at least to the, to the un, uninformed. And so following an earthquake in 1976, there was a major push or a major kind of moment of rural to urban migration that forever changed the city. And since it was a vast majority of La Paloma is organized and managed by gangs, uh, you always needed to have someone um, with you at all times. So I'm walking at the bottom of this barranco with this gang minister. I'm feeling like this is the moment in which I am really enmeshed in this kind of Christian effort to upend gang culture. And all of a sudden I see kind of like turning the corner is this like jolly parade of North Carolinians who are like loud and like New York. I mean, one, one guy's like a transplant from New York and he's like, it's crazy, like this Brooklyn accent. And I'm like, it just like punctures the entire vision of like this local homegrown response to gang culture. And so at that point, I felt like it was impossible not to take up this project because not, not only was like the rapport extraordinary between those Carolinians and this gang minister, but also between me and the Carolinians. And the project was so compelling, uh, both in relationship to the larger uh, child sponsorship industry, which has changed, which changed dramatically, dramatically since Erica's research back in the late 1990s. The whole industry has like, well, it went through different phases. And so I, I pick it up in this moment of experimentation when security becomes actually one of the possible intentions of child sponsorship. And so for me, it was just about following those, those connections. And when you finally got to North Carolina, it sounds like you got, you know, it was a place of huge contrast, right, between La Paloma and when you get to North Carolina. So, so what was kind of like 
the the feeling there when you first arrived? Yeah, it's fu- it's funny you ask the question. I mean, because so much of the research for me is about observing how the Carolinians feel a difference with La Paloma as opposed to... But you're right, though. I mean, a lot of the research was shuttling between Guatemala City and North Carolina, and f- the contrast is so abrupt um, in, a, in, in a productive way because in some ways, I, I, for example, someone who's raised in the United States and in, in a pretty similar kind of suburban middle-class background could find it incredibly familiar, but the contrast is so is so incredibly striking. Well, you said it was productive, right? And it was equally productive, I think, for for the people from North Carolina to sort of go to Guatemala. It was super, yeah, absolutely super productive in the sense that, in two senses. One, that moving from Guatemala City immediately to North Carolina for sets of interviews and observations and going to church and really hanging out with these sponsors to see where sponsorship sits within their larger lives. Because for many, it's, it's, it's not the thing that they do. It's one thing among a lot. Like, like we, we all do a lot of stuff. So it was productive in that sense to, to really feel the contrast between really an upper middle class, middle class to upper middle class experience of the suburbs and a barranco in Guatemala City. That, that was really productive. The other thing that was really productive also about it was that the the child sponsors reminded me so much of myself, not in any kind of confessional sense. I don't have much confessional stakes in, in this whole Christianity uh, business. But what what it did was constantly temper any easy critiques of, oh, they just fly down there and then fly back. And, oh, they just uh, throw some money at the problem. And, uh, what struck me so much about the sponsors were their sincere efforts to make sense of the world by way of this travel, which seemed so anthro- so ethnographic in a sense, and anthropological really, in the sense of alterity allowing some kind of access to larger claims about the human being or, the, or the, the, who we are as humans. And so I felt like the, if, if I had just worked with Carolinians in Guatemala City, I would have lost that kind of empathy or appreciation for for the travel. When the Carolinians engage in child sponsorship, what does that actually entail? Yeah, practically speaking, they're sending a certain amount of money. Usually, it's this, these days it's forty two dollars uh, a month, and then from there, and usually that's uh, a direct withdrawal from their bank account. So it's not as if they're writing a. Oftentimes, it's not as if someone's writing a check every month or putting forty two dollars in an envelope and and whatnot. And from there, though, the the commitment varies. So. Uh, there's the practice of writing letters to a sponsored child, um, which can happen occasionally or during holidays or for a birthday. And that will that will completely depend on the sponsor. Some some sponsors just kind of make this a line item in their um, in their budget and then their work is done. Others really engage. So there's letter writing. There's also what was interesting about this one particular child sponsorship program was that it's a relatively small shop and they encourage site visits. So while World Vision can sometimes be a little cagey about you finding your eventual sponsored child. There was a real encouragement for Carolinians to come on down and spend a day with your sponsored child and to really get a sense of the life that your sponsored child is living, as, as best as one can. So there's a very sort of one-to-one, almost personal kind of relationship happening between sort of the, the sponsors in North Carolina and the the child, the sponsored child in Guatemala. Yeah, and with this, again, I and mean, the credit to this this one program, so for example, World World Vision, and, and they've come, 
and larger shops like that have come under fire for kind of doubling up. So having one kid that has two sponsors or sometimes, because frankly, $42 does not cover. I mean, this is one of the striking things that I found out about the industry is like $42 does not cover what these programs want to do. The overhead, the kind of like, like if you want talent, you got to pay for talent. If you want your program to run well, you need to secure not just like volunteers that are going to come and go, but real professionals. And so to, to the credit of this one program, they didn't double up, and they really focused on connecting one-to-one and fostering uh, a small set of children and a small set of families to an equal number of small set of children, small set of families in North Carolina. So absolutely, there was, there was a real kind of effort to cultivate a one-to-one relationship. So let's, let's sort of take the reverse course that you yeah. took in your own fieldwork and then start in North Carolina. So what, what does uh, sponsorship do? What does it mean for the people who end up sponsoring a child? What does it mean? I mean, it connects to this, the kind of Christianity at play in North Carolina. The sponsors are part of a particular Christianity. Those who are, f- who are actually managing the sponsorship are part of a different Christianity. And the Guatemalans who are being sponsored are part of a different Christianity. So let, let me say, in terms of those who are sponsoring, what does it mean to them? Those who are sponsoring are, tend to be conservative evangelical Christians, which may have conservative political leanings, but and the, the, the kind of general demographic of, of the child sponsors are upwardly mobile. This is North Carolina in the tech sector. They're making good money. Sometimes it's a stay-at-home wife, uh, children, a nice house, and an evangelical call to spread the word of God. Now, in many other contexts, that could that that involves within kind of a portfolio of their Christianity, both like a missionary impulse as well as as well as like a, a philanthropic or a charity driven impulse. And child sponsorship does both in the sense that it's a really effective way to engage the world out there in a, in a, in a missionary way. Uh, so it it satisfies and kind of completes a, an instinct to to go somewhere and to help someone very far away. And that's a long tradition in terms of North American Christianity. But at the same time, it, it, it directs this kind of charity impulse, which is both related to Christianity, but also kind of North American middle class. Like you need to do something with your money. Uh, so go help someone. It's actually a very cost-efficient way to do so. Uh-huh. So what, what, what does it mean for them? I mean, beyond the potential of establishing a really tight relationship, it means kind of fulfilling a missionary impulse and some sort of philanthropic desire. So you call it conspicuous uh, compassion. Yeah. Patrick West uh, wrote this book in 2004 called Conspicuous Compassion. And, and the title is, is evocative enough and kind of explains the term well enough. But child sponsorship can actually have these really incredible moments of, of, of conspicuous compassion. So the brightest one is clearly the, the picture of the sponsored child on the refrigerator door so that when someone walks into your kitchen and they ask, who is this, you're kind of prompted to show and perform your compassion for others. But that actually also extends to the site visits themselves and how people comport themselves as Christians in this really unsettling context. I've, I've been working in Guatemala for 15 years, and, and every time I'm within the context of a, of a barranco or La Paloma, it's, it's an unsettling, this is one of the most unsettled, geographically unsettling parts of Guatemala City. It's, it's a lot to ask of, a, of someone who generally works in the tech sector in the research triangle and then spends a week in Guatemala City to, to engage uh, a world that's very different from theirs. And so that, that, that can get pretty 
pretty blatant. Yeah, and it, and it feels like it changes them, like especially after they return from one of these site visits. Sure, absolutely. It cha- I mean, it, it it completely changes them in the sense that it, it gives them perspective. I mean, so in the kind of the thinnest way, it gives them at least some fodder to to perform piety at church and to see what they. But um, it changes a tremendous amount of them, especially the site visits, to consider their own privilege and wealth in relationship to what is what is just easily considered abject poverty and, and a population that has been, as I say in the article, left behind. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the, the characters that you introduce is Susan, right, who goes on one mm. of these site visits and then comes back and sort of looks at her own surroundings and she's like hating her own house because it's... It, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like too much after what she's seen. She feels like it's too much. The house is too much. Her car is too much. She says she really she really hated the house. But then what does one do? I mean, these are, these are incredibly intimate philosophical questions about distribution and, and wealth. And when one is confronted, and really for the first time, for a lot of people, the first time they're confronted with real abject poverty... And for many, the first time they've traveled out of state, you know, out of the United States. I mean, for that to be your first moment of traveling out of the states is like is extraordinary to just to think about. But it, it it reorients them in how they understand their own production of wealth. So, for me, I think child sponsorship is is oftentimes for me it was such a window into the American middle class, um, and what child sponsorship does often. What I find it to do often in, in the North American context is to provide people with a greater sense of what they have, in the sense that they suddenly feel like they have a lot more, that that their conspicuous consumption should actually be conspicuous compassion, and and that their house is actually not too small but too big now, and their car is not five years old, it's too nice. And and, and, and that wears off, of course, as, as time passes. But it is an interesting effect really affect of, of child sponsorship yeah, yeah. and it seems like it, it it even though it might make them uh, aware of inequality or their own privilege or the poverty sort of immediately around them and the gangs that might be immediately around them it keeps also their focus on sort of this sort of further place right on Guatemala yeah it does I mean while programming even the best of programming can try and connect the the political economy of Central America with that of the United States, which is deeply interrelated. The exchange of labor, drugs, arms, gangs, deports. I mean, 31,000 Guatemalans return to, the United, return to Guatemala every single year from the United States uh, through deportation. I mean, it's an extraordinary exchange of, of, of people and culture. Even the best programming with child sponsorship it, it strains to make those connections for the sponsors themse- themselves, especially when Christianity is the principal means by which this engagement, or through which this engagement is taking place. So it, it can't help be moralized, and in some ways, as I often argue in my work, depoliticized um, to an extent that we are kind of left with Susan saying, like, the house is too big. Well, is that the, is, is, is that the moral kind of crisis that we want all of us to have when it comes to Central America these days? Now, you mentioned um, the exchange of gangs as one of the ways in which uh, the U.S. and Guatemala are connected, right? Now, it turns out uh, from your article that the sort of intensification of gang activity in a place like Guatemala City is intimately connected to uh, immigration or deportation in the States. Oh, it's abs- 
completely related. So, you know, the, the quick, quick history is that following the L.A. riots in 1992, there was a shift in deportation policy such that the United States, and with real xenophobic uh, kind of fervor, began to deport Central Americans back to Central America on gang charges. Well, this resulted in, in the growth of these gangs exponentially in Central America itself. People would, would return from Los Angeles after living 20, 25 years in Los Angeles, return to Guatemala, not speaking the language, having no other option but connecting with gang culture and having not a lot of family relations. It was a t- And of course, the social services in Guatemala City uh, are non-existent for this population, nearly non-existent for this population. So the gang spread tremendously. And not just from Los Angeles. I mean, so the Research Triangle is, a, is another place where there's significant both presence of Central Americans as well as uh, connections to, for example, MS-13, Mara Salvatrucha and Barrio 18, these two large gangs. Uh, North Carolina has long been understood as a laboratory for experimenting with new deportation policies. And one of the largest U.S. aid programs that targeted both anti-narcotics and gang prevention is mediated by what's called the RTI, Research Triangle Institute, which is based in North Carolina. And there was actually a long, I, don't, I have a long-standing research interest in the first Maras, member of Mara Salvatrucha to receive the death penalty, which is based on murders that took place in Greensboro, North Carolina. And North Carolina is an extraordinary site. And and it's also a place where Central Americans work. So they're, the, they're also the people mowing the lawns of, for example, a woman like Susan. Sort of an aside, was there anybody that you met in Guatemala City who had been living in North Carolina? Uh, that's a good question. No, I did not. Though, what's, what's interesting kind of flipping that, um, I talk a little bit about the anonymity of the child sponsorship letters, uh, more so in, in, in the book that I kind of flesh this out. But one of the real strategies in terms of the ch- prompting sponsored children to write letters to their sponsors is to keep it kind of vague in general. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are a lot of strategies for that which we could talk about, but one of which is um, is because the sponsored kid doesn't really know where the sponsor lives, doesn't have an exact address, may know that it's North Carolina, but not really where. And actually, the North Carolina part is oftentimes kind of obscured. And one of the major, two of the major reasons is one, Google Maps makes for an awkward encounter between the sponsor's potential gigantic house and La Paloma. The second is that the sponsor kid may have like a cousin, an uncle. We don't want like a home invasion to result from sponsorship. So you want to keep the actual location of the sponsored of the sponsor kind of like off limits, which makes the exchange somewhat vague between the kid and the and the sponsor. But yeah, I mean the, the connections are are really tight and they're oftentimes mediated uh, very very strictly. Very interesting. Now, um, moving from there, so we have the sort of gangs which really started to intensify because of deportation and sort yes. of this, this uh, you know, strengthening, like even stronger now maybe sort of certainly uh, uh, I don't know animosity or xenophobia even towards uh, yeah no, nothing ha- no the United States has not made any productive efforts when it comes to, to deportation or to Central American security uh, since the LA riots. This mm-hmm. is not, this has not been a good record for the United States. Okay. So there, are, there, there's one thing I want to follow with that, which is this shift in the way that uh, states and these sponsorship agencies uh, approach the gang issue, which you say it's sort of the, the what was it, the, the strong fist approach. 
compared to what's increasingly the, the preventative approach. And that's one of the things that, that uh, is happening in La Paloma, right? This uh, sort of strong fist approach is something that doesn't seem to have worked. Yeah, the strong, the strong, what, what is clear about Central America, whether we take Nicaragua, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, is that this strong fist or a militaristic approach to gangs has not worked. It has only flooded the prisons. So Guatemala's prisons at 250% capacity, and that's actually one of the lightest. I mean, El Salvador, Honduras, they're strained even more. Just locking people up hasn't done anything but generate more animosity and more gang affiliation. So the United States, and also, but also a range of actors, so billions of dollars enter Central America, and billions more if we follow the news right now with Joe Biden and President Obama, uh, hoping to add another billion dollars to U.S. To, to aid in Central America about anti-narcotics and gang prevention. A lot of money and a lot of actors say, well, okay, let's pair a strong fist with something softer, something preventative, something about which looks a lot like development. So what was really interesting, there was this incredible, um, during this, I think it was in 2011, Guatemala City hosted a Central American Security Summit, or an American Security Summit, and Hillary Clinton was there, and it was this big deal, heads of state. It all took place in Guatemala City. And so I was shuttling between work in La Paloma and this conference. Uh, What was interesting was that there was a side booth, and the side booth had all these different security projects. So waiting to be funded or that had already been funded. It was just to showcase what security looks like. And so at one place, it was this, uh, it was like a water purification program. In the second place, it was kind of a micro lending program. And another place, it was this kind of indigenous identity program and, and, or and this after school program. And I'm asking these, these people in the booths, well, I mean, last year you were development and now you're security. And they're, well, I mean, that's where the money is. And that Soft security looks a whole lot like development. Its intentions are different, teleology otherwise, which we can talk about, but the practices look awfully similar. And this is what soft security looks like. It's, it's about a rebranding, a reorientation of past development projects angled towards something like safer streets, preventing people from actually going into a gang. And this is, I mean, so if child sponsorship has been present in the in North America for much of the 20th century and now in the 21st century, it was initially a moment of charity. And then Erica Bornstein comes across and it's also now it's a moment of development. Well, now I look at it and at, at the fringes, at, this, at the fringe of this $4 billion industry, we have experiments about well, what if it's actually security? What if we can keep that kid for $42 a month out of a gang by providing them letters and access to a school and after school program? What if that works? Hoping they choose God over over gangs. Hoping they choose God over gangs. So th- th- this is this is where the promise. I mean, if, if if it was once about something as simple as a conversion, as two ways out, you're either going to die or maybe you'll go to Jesus. God, well, let's hope it's Jesus. That has given way to an entire security apparatus that is focused on prevention and really working on the soul of the child or the soul of the former gang member or the soul of the active gang member to rehabilitate them, to really, I mean, in Christian terms, like resurrect them from their immorality. That's an incredible reorientation of, of, of a problem that could be read otherwise. It could be read in terms of 
class. It could be read in terms of colonialism. It could be read in terms of American exceptionalism. But now it's got a Christian frame. And the soul of the sponsor as well. Well, and this is what's so extraordinary is that it's not just we're working on this kid in Guatemala. Hopefully he doesn't hurt himself or his family through gang affiliation. It's also about how do you make the sponsor's sense of self, their soul, implicated in the actual child itself. I mean, so they're not just saving the kid. They're also becoming the subject of prevention. Their subjectivity is constituted by this effort to help and extend and to become uh, this person, this, this kid's role model. So yeah, it's this incredible imbrication of two different kinds of souls, the sponsor and the sponsored. Suddenly the, the security of Central America depends on both of their interrelated salvation. And that's what you call uh, this sort of tightening relationship between salvation and security and subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very bright moment of, of, this, of this interrelationship where, you know, sub, subjecti- you know, in a very kind of simple sense, we're all, we're all cultivating our subjectivity, right? I mean, I, I'm wearing this sweater because I feel like it makes me look like a professor. You know, who knows? But um, these sponsors are cultivating their subjectivity by deciding to sponsor a kid in Guatemala as opposed to Sri Lanka, but also sponsor a child instead of working at the soup kitchen. Like, there are all these ways in which we get back to conspicuous compassion, that they perform their Christianity and their Christian subjectivity, but it's also directly looking after and, and trying to cultivate the subjectivity of this at-risk child. And, th- and that takes place in very intimate ways. Well, let's talk about some of those ways that they do this. And there are three ways, right? And one you've mentioned already, which is the site visits. So we have people going from North Carolina and visiting children at home or in their neighborhoods. Now, you have a very, very striking sort of illustration of one of these moments in your essay. And I was wondering if you might be able to read that. Sure. Take a short-term mission trip. In La Paloma for a week with corrugated metal overhead and chickens underfoot, a half-dozen child sponsors sat on a bed of a recent gunshot victim. A gang member attacked her taxi a week earlier, the woman explained, shooting her in the leg while also killing her mother, her sister, and the taxista. And although the motive was not and may never be clear, what was obvious, at least to the missionary translating this exchange, was that this act of gang violence orphaned children, tore apart already unstable families, and perpetuated cycles of violence. Also obvious was that this shooting was entirely preventable. Quote, if someone would have been there by their side, this missionary insisted, if someone would have been there defending these gang members, being supportive while they were little children suffering traumas, if only someone had loved them and helped them, then, then they would not be who they are today. She paused to punctuate her next point. A lack of love causes them to become like monsters that extort, kill, rob, and rape, and only the love of God can heal and prevent. Presence, not absence, love, not hate, affection, not aggression, these practices assemble the subject of prevention. So too do moments of righteousness. As these child sponsors sat awkwardly on the edge of this bed, with each Carolinian wanting to fade as quietly as possible into the background, this young lady, this gunshot victim, began to cry. She cried for her sister. She cried for her mother. She wept until a middle-aged man from North Carolina spoke up, called by the Holy Spirit to testify, to announce the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed God's eternal wisdom, describing him as an omniscient gardener who tends to his flowers from a vantage we can never completely understand ultimately making an awkward parallel between pruning and perishing between the trimming of rose bushes and the murder of this young woman's family, he invited everyone, this woman included, to read her tragedy as an invitation to become stronger Christians. Tears are fine, he conceded, but her future, everyone's future, holds the promise of real happiness, of 
real salvation. He then prayed aloud for this woman's pain as well as her children. They are the real victims, he stressed, yet they also hold the promise of real happiness, of real salvation. It's wonderful. So you were sitting there. Yes. In this room while this was going on. And what was going through your head as you were watching this happen? I mean, three things strike me about this at least. I mean, one is that it... Again, sponsors remind me so much of ethnographers in the sense that this young woman, the gunshot victim, couldn't... If, if, if you were like, one of these people is an ethnographer, she would have no idea which one it was, right? I, I'm on the bed and so are the sponsors. So in terms of my participation in this scenario, I'm as culpable as everyone else. The second is that this has a very long history throughout the Americas, what, what's known as the poor visit. And this is where middle class respectable middle-class citizens visit impoverished context, both to feel better about themselves, but then also to, to teach people, to instruct the poor on how to lift themselves up. So, and, and this reverberates through uh, both North American literature and Victorian literature. There's a, a number of, of examples. And the third thing is, is probably just simply that you know, these are extraordinary histories coming together. Christianity, politics, salvation, security—all being all condensed in this in this moment of, of of righteousness. Yeah, it's 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 such a dense moment with all of these histories, as you say, like these these poor visits and um, is very clearly sort of this idea of salvation coming out of this encounter. Yeah, right? that you know we can all be saved, and you know this person might have been let down, but there was a meaning behind that, and we can learn and change ourselves because of this tragic, tragic event. Absolutely. Uh, and the site visits are sort of one moment in which people sort of perform these kinds of subjectivities and learn to sort of craft themselves. Right. And there's also other ways, like these uh, letters, which I thought were uh, an excellent uh, example of what you're talking about as well. Yeah, the letters themselves are really are really powerful, or at least strong windows into the into the relationship. What what I what I'm always struck by with the letters is is the kind of inevitable, almost predictable disconnect that can happen. If if asked to write a letter to a child that I don't know very well right now, I would I would write about my day. I would write about walking to work in the. I would probably talk about the weather. We're we're here in Toronto and it's snowing and it's cold and I it's very different than than Guatemala, so I'd probably write something about that. And the weather is oftentimes uh, kind of this an, an innocuous topic that you would talk about. Um, but then there are things that seem innocuous, but in fact uh, get quite political. And so, for example, household pets, which seems like a middle-class mainstay, um, I noticed becomes this topic where, which might not be surprising to most anthropologists, but pets like dogs and cats really aren't a middle-class mainstay in La Paloma. They're slowly becoming this way to generate passive income in the capital city as like a, a middle class emerges. So you see a lot of the informal selling of puppies in the streets on Sundays in Guatemala City. But that's a whole different economy that La Paloma doesn't engage in. So when a sponsored child is asked to respond about questions about his or her pet, it's, it, it prompts the, the sponsored kid to overreach in terms of what, what he or she may actually know. Mm -hmm. 
And they're kind of coached, it seems. Like. Well, yeah. I mean, this and this makes sense to me, at least. Uh, so we have we have kids, sponsored kids, and they need to write letters. And kids are, and I don't want to generalize because they're anthropologists of children who are going to take me to task on this. But kids, in terms of having tasks and to write letters, need to be organized and managed. And if, if left to their own devices, these letters would be very thin. And oftentimes they are very thin. So they need to be prompted by program directors. Now, the prompting is actually this really interesting moment of management. Uh, and when we talk about when the soul becomes the actual site of security, then a proper letter becomes a real interesting materialization or exteriorization of this thing that haunts Christianity at the very core of what exists inside, the quality of one's inner person. How do become, you show that sort of you know, possibility of being saved. Absolutely. Webkin would say, well, this is about a moment of sincerity, and and Augustine would talk about the uh, the performance of a confession. But yes, this letter becomes this kind of moment where the child can actually perform or write a proper letter that can show that he or she's on the right track. So a short letter is not good enough, uh, and is coached to write a better letter and make sure that the questions are on point and the topics are appropriate and the penmanship is proper. And I, 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 find, I find those kind of intimate uh, instructions to be like the bedrock of governance in Central America, which is like a, you know, an extraordinary statement. But like when, when you're asking a kid to hold a pencil differently because the project is connected to a larger issue of Central American security, I think that's an amazing moment. Yeah. Well, there's this uh, moment in one of the videos posted on your uh, supplemental page for your essay, which uh, shows this sort of moment of, of when the children are starting to write a letter to their sponsors, right? And the first thing they do is, like, put some hand sanitizer on your hands because you want the letter to be clean and all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this is standard across the industry. So that, that, that YouTube clip, which you can check out on the supplemental page, has no relationship to this one sponsorship program. What's important to, to note is that it's just not about the children being instructed, although that's incredibly important, but the industry provides all of these kind of, all these aids to the letter writers themselves also. There's actually this one sponsorship program that for paying not just $42, but $45, they'll actually write the letter for you. So it's this, you know, the letters are important. They're significant to the experience of sponsorship, but how you write a proper letter has been vexing the newly middle class since there has been something called the middle class. So you're saying that the sponsors, say, in North Carolina also have to be sort of helped along the way? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In the sense of like, you know, you put all this in the context, you're working 50 hours a week at the tech sector, you got three kids, you just came back from Whole Foods, you want to uh, dispose of your coffee grounds in like a really respectful way, and then blah, blah, blah. Now you got to write this letter. So you can go online and see all these different example letters you can just copy. They're just, it's, they're totally benign. They're about weather or they're about travel or they're about whatever. Um, but there is also anxiety about, you know, what, what is a, pro what do you say to a small child who's living in La Paloma? Um, you do need a little bit of, of um, instruction. Though, th though I find the instruction, and maybe this is misguided and we can have a conversation, but I find the instruction placed upon the child to be of more political significance than that of, than that placed on the sponsor. But I'd have to think about that more. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, a nice line from Bourdieu or something that says, you know, that's these, uh, what was it, uh, revolutionary or totalitarian governments always want everybody to be wearing the same uniform and performing the same sort of rituals. And because those sort of very uh, close bodily kinds of 
of practices are where these politics sort of get inculcated and embodied in person. Oh, absolutely. And it's and it's this the slightest of distinctions, if we're going to follow Bourdieu, that, that can create the greatest of offenses. Now, there, there is, of course, a lot of leeway given to both ends of it, but the kind of gaffes that can that can come up is 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 it's one point kind of laughable now one of the the best letter writers is this uh boy named uh ronald you call him ronald and then there's an interesting thing about uh what exactly is what kind of subject is being cultivated through these child sponsorship agencies so if if we speak about central american security increasingly becoming interested in a subject that is disciplined and pious and righteous and can comport him or herself in proper ways, and, and these are these are imperatives that are supported by billions of dollars in programs, much pro- programs similar to the sponsorship program. Um, if we have this this emerging moment, uh, then. Who is our shining example? What is what and what does a, a great example look like? Well, it looks like someone who can write a great letter. It looks like someone who can dress themselves very nicely, and it looks like someone who can be very polite in these interactions with sponsors. And he turns out to be a bit uh, like OCD. Well, so yeah, and this is kind of a a popular diagnosis in, in the sense that no doctor said that. The, the, the young boy uh-huh. I'm calling Ronald is OCD, but he certainly exhibits compulsive behavior uh-huh. such that all of my interactions with him were always framed with washing hands repeatedly. And, and, and my interactions with his family, particularly his grandmother, uh, was a real concern over, uh, over his anxieties and his compulsions. And, and that La Paloma was a very difficult place to have these kind of concerns, be, uh, not simply because it's it's a very uh, dirty place that's that, that would kind of return us to Mary Douglas and purity and danger, but uh, that it's it's an unpredictable place. And with this kind of compulsive behavior, it's a trying location. Now, it, it also seems to illustrate sort of this gap between what people imagine to be the child that they're sponsoring or sort of this ideal that they have about the kind of kid who can be saved and what kind of subject is actually, what kind of traits and what kind of behaviors are actually being cultivated at the other end of this exchange? Yeah, you can't, you can't help but notice that there is a tremendous divide between, you know, the expectations and wants and re- really expectations on, on the sponsor's part of, well, what is my money going towards and what kind of person is it making up, if we, if we use Ian Hacking's term of making up people, to what is actually going on on, on the ground, um, and some of that can be just as as simple as I, I remember. There's there's this there was this constant effort to edit out from letters written by children any kind of reference to video games. Now, now video games in in La Paloma is not surprising. A lot of people have access to the internet. It's the way they keep in contact with their with their families. There's a, oftentimes a local internet store, or they themselves may have a TV or a, a, a Nintendo, or I, I don't even know what the like PS2 or whatever it is. But that seemed to be a marker of middle classness. Like, if, if you if you could play video games for three hours a day, why would you need to be sponsored? It's a bit too close for comfort. Then, it's a little too sponsor. close. For, yeah, I mean, so one is like maybe it's too close for comfort. You actually you you obviously have some extra money laying around, which isn't true. If if, if one had to choose between a nicer uh, chair and table or um, a new home gaming system, I think I'd choose a home gaming system in a second. So that seems like a great way to spend extra time. But I think I think I think it is the anxiety over time 
that these North, these Carolinians have very full days and can't imagine why one would live in poverty but still have lots of time left over. If you have lots of time left over, then why don't you go work without any kind of real appreciation that only a third of Guatemala works in the formal economy? That hustling for some money in Guatemala City is actually a really tricky enterprise. I think the one of the most striking and important parts of your essay is how this form of sponsorship sort of fractures La Paloma as like a space and like a community. It's not about this neighborhood anymore, but it's about being plucked up. You call it almost surgical, the way that one person can be saved by a sponsor, but the, another person living in the next house over, moving in the same social circles, might die. Well, yeah, so these, these, are, these are incredibly dramatic um, contexts. And as, as much as a program would want to work towards the community, La Paloma is, is quite large. It's estimated to be around 60,000 people. And so if a, if a shop's going to stay small for principled reasons, it can only really work with a certain number of children. This, this one sponsorship program works with about 200. Maybe it's up to 400. But that, that, that is pushing the limits of, of what the sponsorship can actually do, this program can actually do. What I'm particularly interested in, both in terms of child sponsorship but uh, the other sites that constitute the larger book-length project is how Christianity with its interest in the individual. So we talked about the positioning of the pencil when writing a letter. We talked about how one comports him or herself. I'm interested in how the Christian impulse to save the person creates a very jagged kind of geography in a place like La Paloma and also throughout. I mean, if we talk about uh, the organization of space in Guatemala City, it's not just about materiality, but also morality. That if the movement towards saving Central America, saving Guatemala, is to do it one person at a time, then the logic gets quite surgical or extractive. I took a lot from, in terms of my, my use of the word extraction, I gain a lot from anthropologists of, of mineral extraction and how they understand the tightening in terms of, of transnational capital the borders that exist around particular enclaves and the vast emptiness that exists outwards or outside of that. The kind of extractive logic that Christianity brings to questions of security I find central to this larger security project. Mm -hmm. So we spoke a little bit at first about how La Paloma is a place where agencies and the police don't go. Yeah. And in a way that sort of constitutes it as this sort of spatial zone that is excluded. Right? Yes. And w what's happening with these sponsorship programs is that it's breaking that zone into these sort of like l really laser precise points and sort of out of those points is where people just, you know, extract this sort of moral value or a sense of, you know, uh, ethical productivity or subjectivity. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, what excites me about the language of extraction it is the bright borders that exist between someone that's sponsored and someone who's not sponsored. Now, Erica Bornstein in her article recognizes that there's jealousies that emerge when one person in the family receives presents and one doesn't. And and I think that's significant. That's, that's an incredible ethnographic finding. When sponsorship gets beyond development and starts entering issues of security, the stakes shift tremendously. It's not just about hurt feelings or it's not just about unequal social relationships. This can become matters of life and death. And so when one has access to 
certain resources, and when one doesn't, that bright line gets even brighter. And that and that that is what I find so compelling. And you're right, though. I mean, in terms of if we want to draw stronger parallels with with the idea of um, anthropology of extraction, yeah, I think I think I think a critical angle could say that sponsors are extracting a certain kind of affect from this zone. Uh, we'd have to think through that. There's a connection there between this sort of extraction and this sort of pinpointing and surgical precision and this what do you call it, faith-based fiction, the Left oh. Behind book. Right. Here we have a, a popular, fictitious representation of the end of days in which kind of the, op- the first book in a very long series opens up with a moment in which all of a sudden certain people have disappeared and many others have been left behind. And those who have disappeared are the ones who have saved, who have been saved by God. The rest are left to deal with the rapture. One person on an airplane is sitting next to another person, and that person just disappears, and that the other person is there. Two people are getting married, and all of a sudden, the groom disappears, but the bride is still there. These are kind of bright moments and immediate moments of, of, of being left behind. And what strikes me about that book series and its popularity is that it connects with the bright individuality that new forms of Christianity traffic in that it is about a distinct, recognizable individual person and his or her salvation. And that can't help carry over into aid projects, into security projects. That is just working soul to soul to soul. So have you ever brought up this connection between the Left Behind book and the effects of the child sponsorship program with the child sponsors? That's a tough one. not actually left behind itself, but I mean, what's, what's, what's reassuring is that sponsors and those who are running sponsorship programs are the most comfortable with critiques of the industry. And they're the, they're the, they're the most aware. It's not like all of a sudden I can raise the fact of like, do you think this is the best way to spend your money? Like they, they've thought through it all and, and actually more so in the sense of they have oftentimes a very uncomfortable feeling with the amount of travel that's involved uh, and the kind of waste that's involved and in going from one place to another and oftentimes set up kind of a counter donation. So if you're going to spend 1500 to go visit your child, then you should also raise another 1500 to donate to the organization instead to offset kind of your, your footprint in the process. But no, the Left Behind series, no. That's not... What, what do they think? Have they read your work? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're uh-huh. well aware of City of God. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, what's actually interesting when you're doing field work for a second project, you know, as a first project, you're just kind of this, as, as has been written, you know, a great deal. You're just kind of this, like, random person. Like, why are you here? And, what, you know, you're an anthropologist. What's that? And et cetera. But with a second project, and you have a book out, and you, you're affiliated with the university in a different way than just a student, all there, there's a track record. Um, and so that kind of rapprochement actually was, uh, was easier because, and also because, uh, all the sponsors read English that they could get a quick sense of, of my style of analysis and my style of ethnography and what I kind of set out to do. And so they, they, you said they were, you know, very ready to critique the industry. You meant the, the sponsors? Those who manage the sponsorship program are well aware mm-hmm. of the critiques and are involved in a very kind of forward-looking, self-critical, kind of industry-specific conversation about how do we do this better? Because 
they know it works. Mm-hmm. So 2008, major financial crash. This is not news to anyone. All philanthropic contributions dip except sponsorship worldwide. Sponsorship stays steady. Why? Because you're not just you're not just no longer giving to the soup kitchen. You're you're, you're no longer giving to Ronald. You 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 keep these commitments, and it's also a very incredible mechanism for redistribution, which which is a, a quite liberal in, in a kind of North American context, very liberal commitment to move money from one point to another because one place has too much and another place needs more. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, they have, they're well-versed in all of these, these criticisms. What do you hope people who have read your article come away with thinking about child sponsorship programs? Well, I think in terms of sponsorship programs, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we learn a tremendous amount about sponsorship programs per se. I think what we learn about in terms of this research is about Central American security, at least that's my intention, in the sense that sponsorship programs is just one moment in a, in a, in a burgeoning constellation of projects that take individuals to be the site of intervention. I want to say that in a place like Central America that for much of the later 20th century was state-driven with state violence amid civil wars, that today Christians, in the spirit of Christianity, that individuals can be saved, that they should be saved, that real change is possible, that those kind of imperatives have begun to organize not just civil society, but very specific efforts at making streets safer, making people better. Um, And so what I would hope that what people walk away from the actual article is, is not whether they should or should not sponsor a child or that sponsorship is good or sponsorship is bad, but that the character and the basic coordinates of Central American security have changed dramatically and that sponsorship is just one moment in that. They're doing much more than sponsoring a child when they're participating in this kind of thing. It's participating in this whole sort of new emerging apparatus of security Yes, focuses on not the state, but these particular people. Absolutely. Absolutely. How does this argument fit into the book? So you have a book called Secure the Soul, which deals with the kinds of materials and ideas you have in this essay. This essay on sponsorship really performs the larger argument of the book to say that uh, security in Central America has changed significantly because of Christian participation in trying to better life in Guatemala by saving individual people. Sponsorship is, is one moment, and one pretty interesting moment that connects Central America to North America, not by just deportation, but by these real distinct moments of cultivating a relationship. You've been listening to Kevin Lewis O'Neill, the winner of the 2014 Cultural Horizons Prize on Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. You can find his prize-winning essay, Left Behind, Security, Salvation, and the Subject of Prevention in the May 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. His books, City of God and Secure the Soul, are available from the University of California Press. His essay and links to his other work are at cullamp.org. This episode of Anthropod has been produced by Jessica Lockram and Gran Otsky. Um, the Anthropod team is Sean Firmage, Jessica Lockram, Gran Otsky, Rupa Palai, Jonah Rubin, Julia Sizek, and Bascom Guffin. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
And you can also visit us at culinth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H.org. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Culinth. If you've enjoyed cultural anthropology, anthropod, or any of the other content from the Society for Cultural Anthropology, please visit our website and offer your financial support. I'm Grant. And I'm Jessica. Thanks for listening.